This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. Sometimes I sit in meditation thinking, what am I doing? I feel as if I'm tearing holes in my mind. And I think that is possibly paralleled in my writing process now. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of The Poetry Review. I'm here today with the poet Gillian Allnutt, who has three poems in the latest issue of the magazine. I should just mention that we're in quite a noisy environment, so apologies for any sort of disruption to the service. Welcome, Gillian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Gillian has published eight collections since... 1981, including her selected How the Bicycle Shone and the most recent being Indwelling, published in 2013. Earlier this year, she was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. Um, I think I'm right in saying that you've got another collection coming out next year, is that so? That's right, yes. So we've got that to look forward to. Gillian, I thought we'd begin by hearing a couple of your poems in the issue, Magdalene and Portrait of Hester by her husband. So could you read them to us? Yes, I'd be pleased. (laughs) Thank you. Magdalene, the darkest hour, the stars arisen asinine, tomb and I left opened to the altogether. Am I to live among men, abandoned? I may learn to love again. Adrift in Jerusalem, am I upon strewn palm? Thank you. And um, a portrait of Hester? Portrait of Hester by her husband. How well she has worn the wooden evangelist of the mind I wrought in her. He is fraught as Angel Clare with honesty, with his latchet worthy of her. When I am gone, she will put him on the fire as if he'd condemned her. One of the most striking things about these poems, which I feel like they have in common with those in Indwelling, is that they're very sort of minimal and spare in their use of words. They're quite fragmentary. Absolutely no words are wasted, and there's a lot of silence in and around the words. They're also very rich in illusion and very atmospheric. It's quite difficult to know how to talk about them in some ways. They've got this kind of ethereal quality I'll just describe the appearance of Magdalene for the benefit of the listeners. So it's made up of six mostly quite short lines separated by a line space. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about your use of form, the way in which the poem delivers a sense of space, which is also brought out in that poem by the the kind of content. There's a sense of maybe kind of disintegration. Yes, I think it's related to practising meditation, Mm. and trying not to think. And sometimes I sit in meditation thinking, what am I doing? I feel as if I'm tearing holes in my mind. And I think that is possibly paralleled in my writing process now. The most significant feeling things can come up during meditation and between meditation sessions. And I think my, my best word is twinge, glimmer, uh, it's a sort of psychological, physical <laughs> sensation. And and to get hold of it and come anywhere near turning it into words is is almost impossible. 
and to do without a feeling of betrayal is very difficult. So it's bits and pieces and twinges and glimmers, and I suppose that's what's happening in the poems, that there are just these fragmentary bits that I can get hold of and and feel confident about leaving and feel I haven't misunderstood or betrayed what wanted to say itself. Definitely the experience of reading your poems is they do feel very meditative and I was interested actually to ask if you did meditate. It's something I'm trying to practice and um, I think it does have a very interesting relationship to poetry, perhaps because it is about sitting with silence and, as you say, allowing things to sort of come up. Your poems kind of have that sense. The thing I say most often to creative writing workshops and classes is don't think, listen. And for me, that's what writing poems and doing meditation have in common. You listen for the poem to say itself, ideally. And in my own mind, there's a very close connection between meditation and prayer. The best way for me to empty my mind is to imagine that I'm listening to God by any other name. Yeah, I think it's a great way of thinking of what poetry is, whether you're religious or not, that it's a kind of prayer of one kind or another. I'm sort of thinking a bit more along those lines. I was thinking about the kind of idea of what a fragment is, We think of a fragment as being part of something larger that is disappeared or that is not accessible. But I wondered if you feel like sometimes a fragment is a kind of whole piece that the poems, as you present them, that they are, you know, the whole thing. I guess the whole thing is a hinterland. And one advantage of writing in fragments is that you can leave open more possibilities. I mean, I often look up words in the shorter Oxford that I have. I love dwelling in the dictionary. And it's often to check what, what is the reach of a particular word, the contemporary and the historical reach, and so how far I can push it, how much I can suggest. And so the gaps, I hope, the gaps in the poems between fragments are both closing the possibilities a bit because otherwise it's cheating you've got to choose and decide what it is you're trying to say but also leaving them as open as possible yeah I think that's how it sort of feels as a reader I was really interested in your reading last night that you did give with some of the poems quite a sort of detailed backstory in some cases in poetry readings some people will give a little introduction at the start and that sets you up for the reading But I like the way it was done the other way round so that you kind of take the poem as it is and then you have this other information that you can choose to fit around it if if you want to. And in Indwelling, you've got quite a few sort of notes to the poems clarifying different things. With Portrait of Hester in the review, we had a discussion about whether to include a note or not. And I guess I'm interested in, alongside this kind of pairing back of the sort of lyric body of the poem... There seems to be this marginal voice that's hedging in, not quite ready to be silent. And do you have a sense of how those kind of voices interrelate? I mean, is it important that people get your illusions? I don't know. It was interesting that you said you would rather not have footnotes to the uh, Hester poem. And I thought, yeah, great, let's do without. I mean, my own trajectory has been to create longer and longer 
notes and footnotes mm. um, and I think I've got to a turning point that I want to pull back and I mean in the 30, 40 years I've been publishing the world has changed so much and I have a sense that when I began I knew exactly what needed to go in a footnote because I knew who my readership was but now as an aspect of globalisation I have no idea and no idea of the background and the education of the readership and I mean I must say I'm tempted just to put Google it at the bottom of every yeah. page because <laughs> that is the good side of it people can and maybe I should just leave them to choose whether they do or not it's nice to be able to take a poem completely on its own merits without any information and also have an, another sort of guide I was thinking about in context of talking about meditation that you know you sometimes might meditate to a, a recording that sort of guides you through that process so it could be seen <laughs> something like that maybe when I listen to classical music say to a Beethoven symphony sometimes I would like to have a good written analysis of the structure mm. of each movement and to follow that and other times I just want to fall into it and be immersed and dream with it both I think are quite important and you do write about music quite a lot don't you yes I suppose music would fall into the category of ekphrastic. A lot of your work looks at paintings and um, responds to them, and I was interested in that and how that work arises for you. Do you sort of deliberately go to artworks to be inspired, or does it kind of come spontaneously? The latter. I use music quite a lot in creative writing classes and workshops, and I choose the pieces that I use completely intuitively, and I listen to Radio 3 a lot. That's my, my default radio channel. And sometimes I'll hear a piece and think, oh, fantastic. And also, that would work in creative writing. That's music for being taken down by, is what I call it. Um, Arvo Pert, I think, is the arch composer on that front. But there's lots of different things. I like to use music where people won't know what it is, preferably, so they don't bring a lot of ready-made associations to what they do when they're listening or yeah, write afterwards. But the music is in the poetry. That's where I do my music. And I think coinciding with that, I stopped making music so much and started listening to it. And the more I've listened, the more I've written poems about composers. Because so again, Do you have a musical training then? Or no, not just, really. Do you play instruments or something my mother played piano and um, she grew up wanting to be a classical pianist. Okay. But the war came and so on. Yeah. So she brought the sort of formal training side to music and my father had played in a jazz band before the war and just improvised. And so there was that sort yeah, of singing so and dancing and, and klezmer almost and, and jazz from my father. Mm. So we finally had piano lessons, which we couldn't afford but I did O-level music and you had to have grade five in an instrument for the particular board my school did. Yeah. So we got our piano lessons, but we had recorder at school and then we'd inherited a ukulele banjo from the jazz band before the war. Wow. And we taught ourselves to play that while we saved up to buy guitars. This was 60s. It was lots of different sources. And then later on... Somebody came to the school when I was in sixth form and started an orchestra and got violins from the county. And to the great fury of my parents, I signed up 
to <laughs> play the violin. And I loved that. That's my favourite instrument. Why were they furious um, about? Because it sounds so horrible when you start. Oh, okay, Even if, yeah. you, if you know that the note <laughs> is out, it still sounds horrible till you learn yeah. how to do it, obviously. And then later on I played flute and just... I went to Czechoslovakia, as it was, and got an ocarina and just eclectic, really. Yeah, so quite yeah. a virtuoso. Uh, <laughs> it makes me think of your poems and the way in which they would follow on from that kind of trajectory with the sort of spaces in between acting in the way that sort of rests do and music shaping the sound. Yes. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your career as a whole. You've recently been awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry, which honours the body of work you've produced over the years. I'm interested in sort of what it means or how it feels to have produced a significant body of work and what it means to look back on that as well as looking forwards. I mean, do you feel that your poetry preoccupations have changed over the years or do certain themes hold fast? That's an interesting question. I see it in terms of what writing has been tied to in the rest of my life so to start with it was quite closely tied to politics feminism in particular although I absolutely always refused to be called a feminist poet I conceded woman poet that's yeah fine, that's interesting can I poet. ask a bit about why that would be because it was a constricting and would prevent me from publishing something unfeminist Yes, I, I, I want it completely open. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, I interrupted you sort of in a longer thread. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose racism also has, has been important, anti-racism. And then for a very long time it became most closely connected with teaching. I started off, I did a PGCE to teach secondary school English and taught adult literacy, taught in adult and further education and then gradually moved into teaching more creative writing and working as a writer in schools. And that was mostly after I moved back to the northeast in 1988, to the point where all of my teaching was creative writing. And so the writing and the teaching came really close together. And I decided the only way I was ever going to get paid to write was by doing it when I was teaching. And so I always do the exercise myself. I always make people write in the workshop itself and do the writing myself. But that chief reason for that is to be democratic and to lay myself on the line. But then I got... In 2005, I got the Northern Rock Foundation Writers' Award. And they ask you, as a condition of receiving the award, to give up some of your paid work so that other writers have a look in. They can take over your teaching or your journalism or whatever you do. Okay. And I decided to give up the lot, being quite all-or-nothing sort of person. And indeed, I only applied for it in the fourth year of its existence because I realised that I would be losing what structures my life, which is paid work in the world, mainly teaching, and also because teaching is, is sociable and writing is obviously so solitary. Yeah. But I took the plunge and applied in the fourth year and got it and then had to discover really what my writing tied itself to and it, it was meditation and so it's become partly because of that I think become much more spiritual I think it would have gone in that direction anyway my experience of actually writing changed which surprised me so it had been a sort of red hot immersive involved process and actually I smoked an awful lot till 19 
1998. And so it has to do with not smoking anymore, but it's become a sort of cold white process. And I feel I work at a distance. Now I don't smoke, I don't finish poems all in one go. So I come back to them <laughs> several times. And I have to go back through the drafts quite often to think, what is this poem about? Where was I? What am I doing? Yeah. And I never used to have to do that. I so. wonder what it was about smoking that kept you at the poem until it was finished. It aided concentration and masked exhaustion. Um, yeah. I mean, I could go for six, seven, eight hours sometimes, and, and that's somehow just not on without smoking. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to return for a moment to the topic of meditation, because I suddenly wondered since you said that the two, writing and meditation, sort of go together, do you find that the process of meditating is a kind of inspirational state? I mean, if you're in the in a practice of meditating, do phrases come to you that you then later use in poems, or is it more that the meditating is a sort of warm-up for later writing, or is, is it neither of those things? Sometimes something that comes to me in meditation I will take up with it in writing. Mm. Sometimes something that comes to me between meditation sessions but is related to them yeah. will also be related to poetry and I'll, I'll take up with it. I honestly, after all these years, I can't say how it works and how, it's, how a poem starts. It, yeah. it really does seem to be in all sorts of different ways. I found myself wanting to say, I know exactly what I'm doing and I haven't got a clue. <laughs> And the combination is the truth. Just there being a paradox about it is probably... Mm. If someone could pin down where poetry came from, maybe we'd all have to give up. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and do you have any kind of guiding lights, poets, that you find yourself returning to? I was wondering what led you into poetry initially. Did you start writing from a young age? How did it come about? When I was seven, I heard myself say, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> And I didn't want to be a poet, I wanted to write novels. But we moved from London to Newcastle when I was seven and we moved from Newcastle back to Dorking in Surrey in the south when I was 15. And that was the time when I wrote my first real poem, which I wrote at home on my own because I wanted to. I think probably the moves, both the moves actually, when I think about it, were uprooting enough to start the process. But then I did philosophy. Well, I did philosophy part one at Cambridge and it was just completely ruinous of the kind of thinking that you do as a poet. It was like I'd analysed the poem before I'd written it and I changed to English part two, but I still didn't really get back to or, or get on to the fruitful writing place till my mid-twenties. Interesting that the philosophy somehow was a opposing force because in a way your poems are quite philosophical so maybe one cancelled out the other. I just return again also to briefly sort of touched on sort of feminist issues. You published your first collection Spitting the Pips with Sheba Feminist Publishers in 1981 and your second Beginning the Avocado with iconic women's publishers Virago before moving to Bloodaxe. I wondered how things have changed since then and how your experience of beginning to publish poetry in like the 70s and 80s would be different to a young woman beginning to publish now if you have any sense of that sort of difference. 
the fabric of the literary world, of the poetry world, is so much more closely woven and out there. And there is a lot more rewards and ways of starting. And for better, for worse, the creative writing industry, which I've been deeply involved in helping to make, is there, and it wasn't. I mean, when I started teaching creative writing in 1983, looking back, I know that I was one of the first... It just didn't exist here. I think it's a very different world mm. now. And did you encounter sort of difficulties as a, a woman writer trying to get published? I acquired the lifelong habit of running my eye down the index of anthologies and magazines yeah. to see <laughs> what proportion of poems are written by women. And mm. Dale Spender, who seems to have gone completely from the collective memory. She was an Australian feminist who wrote Man-Made Language. It was published in the late 60s or early 70s. I mean, she went round measuring how many column inches in the newspaper were were by women. And again, I noticed that and did my best to to reverse the the Mm. proportions at city limits. Yeah, obviously that's still something that we're aware of today, Mm. though it must have improved considerably. But looking back at magazines from several decades ago the the balance is very out (laughs) yes but I must say having worked with both Sheba and Virago then going to Bloodaxe and working with an editor who was primarily concerned with poetry was wonderful and especially Virago didn't understand how hands-off editing poetry is yeah So we had the uh, launch of the Spring Poetry Review last night, at which Gillian was one of our readers and read very beautifully. And she explained that her poem Magdalene was about Mary Magdalene, or that she was a figure that had fascinated you for a while and that you'd sort of felt that you'd put her to bed in some way. And you spoke also about portrait of Hester by her husband as also sort of representing a character, if that's the right word, that you'd been sort of bothered by or sort of visited by and I was interested in your use of female figures sort of inhabiting voices in your poems and the kind of compassion with which you spoke about them as sort of very alive kind of characters and I think the third poem that you have in the issue you spoke about as maybe more personal but similarly sort of a, a kind of character I wondered if you had any sort of thoughts about that process of kind of inhabiting other voices, being kind of haunted, if you like, by characters who find their way into your poems. Yes, definitely. For a a very long time, probably 20 years, I wrote very much in persona and found it really liberating and loved doing it. And I think the paradoxical thing there is that the more you think you're writing as somebody else, the more you're writing as yourself and the more you find out about yourself. And not just women. I mean, I've written mm. in the persona of men as well and found that also very liberating. Yeah. Well, indeed, I mean, Hester, the poem is actually spoken by her husband. Well, I think we'll finish by hearing one more poem. So would you read us Abutment, please? Abutment. But for the askance in her, but for the biding in abeyance of her, but for the clairvoyance that came to her like a grandmother, but for the expanse of love in her, the lark in the clear air, but for the old acquaintedness with violence in her.
Thank you very much. Such a beautiful poem. Thank you very much, Gillian, for talking to us. And thank you to those of you who've been listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.